Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode covers the season three finale mythology. Uh, what do we see in the spirit world in part 17 and 18? And what is the lodge lore that we explore? So let's jump right into that. We have the spirit world. This will discuss some aspects of part 18 and part 17 as well. We have the zone, what I like to call, you know, that, that sort of spiral in the sky that Hastings described and, and we see in these different areas. Mr. C encounters that spiral in uh, the woods near the Golden Pond, same place Andy did when he was sucked up into the giant's fireman's palace. So we know this is like a gateway to the fireman's palace just as Glastonbury Grove is a gateway to the Red Room and presumably the South Dakota, that junkyard, it's not a junkyard, it's just an abandoned housing area, that that spiral leads to uh, the convenience store it seems. Although it's funny like when Cooper eventually goes to the convenience store it's like a whole other thing. It's like on the side of the road somewhere, pops up in the convenience store, climbs up that. He doesn't, uh, no spiral opens up for him so I don't know what all that means. Maybe he just has his own special entry because he's you know got Bob inside of him or something. For the Purple World Tower we travel inside of there to see the theater room that space that we saw in part eight. We're seeing it in a very different way now. It looks like some sort of I don't know like a flash animation or something. I can't quite say what it is like a screensaver like a DVD like it's just it looks like it's sort of like a video template that's being worked with there. I don't know, like an art piece or something. It has a distinct feel that I can't quite analogize but it's just like facing the stage. We're looking at the proscenium. We're looking at these two cages. We have animation within that one face stretched out on one side. Uh, Mr. C's face inside of a cage on the other. And there's some sort of smoke coming off of it, I think. And if you look closely, you see the giant in the corner floating there. Uh, we do get one close-up of him swiping his arm. People laughed and they called it like a swipe right type of thing, like a Tinder or whatever. Where uh, on the big screen there, where in the earlier episode we saw Judy and the atomic bomb and the Bob bubble and all this stuff, now we see an image of the Palmer house. So it's like, okay, so he's sending, Mr. C is supposed to go through this portal to the Palmer house. But the fireman sends him to the sheriff's station instead. What's going on there exactly? Did Mr. C make any decisions that led them to be able to do this? Like, why are they able to circumvent him in this way? What exactly is going on here? But there's a sense in which he was supposed to go to the Palmer House, which, of course, we've been led to believe. Well, we know at least it's the jumping man in said Sarah and probably Judy as well in some capacity. So he's trying to unite with this figure somehow there, but instead he gets diverted. The convenience store slash motel, that appears in this episode when Cooper, the good Cooper, or now the integrate, whatever he is, you know, the Cooper who is not Mr. C, he goes through that great northern door, he ends up in this dark space, the one-armed man approaches him and then uh, escorts him to Jeffrey's. And we know they're passing through that passageway we've seen before. I don't think we ever see them go up the stairs. It's almost like it's a different entrance to the convenience store in a way. But we see them trudge up those stairs and end up in the motel area and escorts him to Jeffrey's. And then Jeffries, as the kettle vision talks to him, it's sending up numbers and, uh, well, in this case, actually not many numbers. It's not sending up coordinates. It just sort of through its steam, it projects the number eight and that spins around and there's a little ball inside the eight rolling back and forth. So some sort of suggestion of infinity of parallel universes, not sure. And then Cooper is zapped from there to 1989 Twin Peaks, which is signified by the spinning of the fan. And finally, for the spirit world appropriately, the last spirit world location we ever see in this season three and possibly ever 
is the Red Room, that classic Spirit World location, the first one we ever saw, the only one we really saw before Firewalk with me, uh, you know, which introduced us to convenience store space. And in this episode, we see, we don't see the Red Room until uh, part 18. We don't see it in part 17 at all. As I mentioned, we see Mr. C burning there. Once he's gone, we see a little gold ball, the one-armed man, makes a new Dougie by putting uh, Cooper's hair that he gave him in part 16. We see the gold ball gobble up the hair. It's kind of funny. Some some weird sort of alchemy happening here. I suppose the gold ball is the soul and the hair is the matter and you join the two together or something. <laughs> That's the mechanics of it, I guess. And the one-armed man, uh, later he asks Cooper uh, in the Red Room, is it future or is it past? And this is a repeat of, I think, the same, almost the same shot as certainly the same dialogue in part two. There's an explicit parallel being set up here. Is Cooper now reliving this Red Room passage because he failed to rescue Laura or accidentally screwed up his timeline? You know, what exactly? Is it? They call this place the waiting room sometimes. Is, is he in this sort of waiting room between two worlds? Not between two lodges, but between two versions of the external world. We also see... Uh, well, the, things happen a little differently this time. In part two, the one-armed man says, is it future, is it past? And then this is sort of after Laura then appears there in the seat next to him. But in this version, Cooper looks very pointedly at that seat and it's empty. There's no Laura. Laura is not there. The one-armed man actually leads him off. They go together to visit the evolution of the arm. And the evolution of the arm uh, says... It, you know, he has a line, speaks a line that Audrey spoke earlier. Is it the story of the little girl who lives down the lane? We see Laura whispering to Cooper. We basically see the end of their scene together from part two repeated. She screams and is taken out of the red room. Same incident happens. But then something funny happens. A few funny things happen here. So first of all, people have described this as a flashback. They've said the evolution of the arm is saying to Cooper, is it the story of the little girl? And he's remembering what happened with Laura. But that's not actually what we see here because if it's a flashback, that flashback never ends. Everything that we see from this point on proceeds from Laura disappearing. So it really is showing us like an alternate route. I'm not sure what the evolution of the arm has to do with that redirect, but when we see Laura whisper in Cooper's ear and scream and disappear, we don't go back to him with the evolution of the arm. We just proceed from there. And the funny thing is, in part two, Cooper kind of looks, he's looking up at this, the sky or the ceiling or you know whatever's there i think there is no ceiling where wherever laura disappeared to and then he looks down and straight ahead and in part two what he sees is the curtains start to rumble they rip away and we see the horse and we move past the horse into this kind of darkness and then other stuff happens in this version cooper turns he looks off screen and what do we see we see those curtains they don't blow, there's no horse, there's no journeying on to whatever, you know, the horse signifies. Laura's trauma, Sarah's pain and denial and trauma, something else, like whatever that signifies and has signified in episodes 14 of Firewalk With Me. We don't see the horse, we see Cooper. He's looking at himself. He comes through those curtains. And I'm telling you, that moment when Cooper comes through the curtains, this isn't like, this isn't my interpretation. Look at it, that's Richard or, you know, whatever you want to call the Cooper through the rest of part 18. He has, Kyle McLaughlin has a very different performance style 
as that sort of part 18 ambivalent Cooper, Richard, whatever you want to call him. That begins at that moment when he comes through the curtains. There's almost like a scowl on his face. Look at it. Like I'm telling you, I don't know why I'm so like insistent on this, but it just, it's like, it's frustrating to me that people say like, well, Richard emerges when he comes out from the red room and talks to Diane or Richard emerges when they cross over in the desert or Richard emerges when they have sex or Richard emerges the next morning in the motel. Um, and just who cares the name Richard? I'm just using that to describe the Cooper of, of you know, the later part of part 18. Like, look at it. His demeanor is totally different from the other red room scenes as soon as he walks through that curtain. And here's the other funny thing. So who's looking at him? The cut suggests that Cooper is looking at him there. But when we cut back from Cooper walking through the red room and walking kind of up to the camera almost and looking just off screen and kind of, I think, matching the eyeline of whoever was looking at him, when we cut back, it's Leland sitting there. It's not Cooper. So again, we have this strange connection between Cooper and Leland. What's going on there? Are they telling us something about Cooper's own responsibility or, you know, shared experience with Leland? Both were possessed possessed by Bob at some point. Uh, does it say something about their relationship to Laura and the fact that he says, and he repeats it here, this part is a repetition of what he says in part two, although it's shot from a different angle. It's literally like the camera has flipped 90 degrees or whatever, you know, so you're looking at the same exact shot, Leland in the seat, but flipped over. But he says the same line. He says, find Laura, says it again, and sends him off almost on another mission of finding Laura now in a different way. Uh, you know, I don't know the mechanics of this. The, I've heard the different interpretations. None of them totally sell me on like, you know, Cooper is on this deep Blue Rose mission to expose Judy and find Laura. I've certainly never heard anything that explains why Leland is telling him this of all characters. And it seems like I, I hear people explaining Leland as like, oh, this is the Leland, the sad father who wants, you know, I'm sorry, I don't think you can do that divorce. And it's funny, when has Cooper encountered Leland before in the past or a version of Leland? He encounters the doppelganger in the Red Room in episode 29. And that version of Leland says to him, I did not kill anybody. And he kind of laughs. And that's the moment right before early proto-Mr. C catches up with Cooper and chases him through the hallways. So again, this tie between Leland's responsibility or his interest or concern for Laura with something to do with Cooper and his mission. There's almost this suggestion that his inability to comprehend Leland's abuse of Laura, that there is some kind of damning, that he damns himself through that. And that perhaps, you know, as people interpret that has something to do with his own responsibilities in, in his life or something. Certainly in this show, we're given his relationship with Diane, this very thorny, complicated thing where, okay, so it was supposedly the doppelganger who, who raped Diane. And yet, certainly with the Richard Cooper, there's the idea that the full real Cooper, yes, it's the real me, as he says, is some kind of combination of those forces and that somehow he does have a kind of... Uh, responsibility for for the Mr. C actions. Maybe not even on a narrative level, maybe on a thematic level. I'm not sure. Cooper there is transposed Leland told Find Laura. He walks off and as he's walking towards the curtain, he does something he did in part two where he kind of bumps into the curtain, except in this case, he waves his hand forward, he rustles them, and he moves through. And people have said, this is like the ascended full Cooper, the magician. He now controls his environment 
in the Red Room. Maybe so. I'm not sure totally of the significance of that in the moment. Finally, I'm going to mention one more bit before we move on. The end credits run over a shot of the Red Room, which is Laura whispering in Cooper's ear in slow motion. It's not a freeze frame. It's a very slowed down version of his reaction. And it goes from horrified to grimacing to forlorn to distressed. It's just a really rich series of very subtle expressions and the music playing what a moment that was when the series ended that way and i guess i'll talk about this here since i'm talking about it as part of the red room but just that feeling of oh my god uh, david lynch has done it again and i probably hadn't felt that way since i'd watched some of his films for the first time it's a sense you only get watching his works for the first time when you see a david lynch work and you don't know what's coming and the ending comes and you realize it's gonna leave you with that sense of longing and frustration and not knowing and you can see it happening before your eyes and it's terrible but it's kind of like awesome in a way in the true sense of awesome you know it fills you with awe i remember saying oh my god people are going to be so upset about this and i was kind of not exactly upset like i was sort of braced for it but there was there was a feeling of like loss and confusion and uh, disorientation as, as this happened. That explicit gesture, the fact that Lars is whispering something to him, is reinforcing that mystery. It's reinforcing Lynch's original idea of like, we don't tell Lars secret. It remains a secret. The audience doesn't know. And so what's interesting to me about this is, well, we do know. We know what she whispered to him in the Red Room in season one. She said, my father killed me. Wouldn't it be funny if... What we're seeing here is just a repeat of that. And Lynch is making it a mystery again, simply by not telling us that's what she's saying. And so leading us back into confusion from the knowing, even though we know, even though we've always known. And it reminds me of how this exists. It's an interesting conclusion, given where we've been in Firewalk With Me and even in the original series. It restores us to a mystery, but I don't think it undoes the solutions that we already know. I think it just puts us on another side of them. Lodge lore. I've already really touched on so much of this stuff, so I'm just gonna kind of go through it, list it off, and if there's something else to say along the way, I will. To start with, I wanna share something actually recorded for the previous episode, but I saved it till now because it had spoilers about the identity of Diane and NATO. It has to do with what she said in part 16 about the station. So uh, let's dig into that a little bit before we get into 17 and 18 proper with the lodge lore. And people have concluded that when Cooper brought Diane to the convenience store, which is the gas station she's speaking of, that she was locked away as NATO and the the topo was created. And it's interesting, of course, NATO has no eyes. She can't see. So it's this idea of like somehow keeping a semblance of the person alive, but they're not empowered. I mean, I just watched Get Out this this past week. So it kind of makes me think of the sunken place. Although interestingly enough, you have a racial dynamic here as well with an Asian character who is actually the white character. And uh, I guess you could draw a parallel there of say that She's in the sunken place and the white character is the manifestation in the real world. Or you could probably draw the opposite conclusion since Diane is the one we think of as the real character. and She's concealed inside this other character. So there's stuff going on there that people definitely had issues with. I mentioned Judy is described as an extreme negative force known in olden times as Jowaday. Miriam Bale, the film critic, pointed out on Twitter, it's the, the, the key word there is negative. That's the opposite of positive. Like an electrical charge, you know, there's a positive charge and a negative charge. And that's basically what Gordon is describing. And that makes so much sense. I mean, electricity is the mythology of Twin Peaks. And more importantly, I think it leaves out this whole 
binary sort of uh, good evil complex that I don't think is really that helpful for thinking about Lynch's cosmology, even though sometimes it seems to be. I like the idea of like a negative force. And of course, when you see the jumping man later, it's moving down the stairs while Cooper's moving up the stairs. So, you you, you know, you kind of have this sense of like this negative force moving in the other direction. Another development that feels like a uh, retcon, not just of original, I'm talking about the Judy thing. It, it feels like a retcon, not just of original Twin Peaks, or in this case, Firewalk With Me, since Judy's never mentioned in the original Twin Peaks. But it also feels like a retcon of the return from where it began with like the experiments and what's going on here. And then suddenly in the end, Gordon's like, hey guys, uh, this is what Jowade is, Judy. It feels like trying to figure out something after the fact that they invented for this show to tie it all together. I've just felt like for a long time that Lynch and Frost, it, it feels, and, and Frost has said they wrote, they took a year to write the first two hours and then they wrote the rest in the following year, which really makes me think that they came up with stuff that they didn't know how it would come out. Um, so in a sense, they did like retcon things and they did try to write themselves out of corners, but they did it all before the show was produced. So like they could have done it another way, but I think this is just my hunch that they liked writing that way because it reminded them of the original show of like that was their approach then was to write open-ended things and then figure out what they were later. So it seems like instead of writing things and then move, moving backwards to like plant the seeds, they planted the seeds before knowing what they would grow. Who knows? Mr. C uh, looks for the coordinates from Briggs, follow through on that stuff. Cooper, you know, we see him at Jackrabbit's palace. Uh, we Interestingly, when we see the zone spiral emerging in the sky, we, when we saw it in the woods before, it was like started out black and then a white center kind of emerged in the middle of it, which suggested kind of a white lodge thing. Whereas in South Dakota, it was the reverse. Like it seemed like it had a white center. And then as it got wider and bigger, you would see a black hole kind of emerging in the middle. But this time we don't see the white center. And that might just be just because they decided to cut earlier. They didn't want to focus on it as long because he does still go to the fireman's space. Cooper's face is burning inside the cage. I'm not sure why that is, but we do see him burning later as well in uh, the Red Room. Make of that what you will. I'm still wondering what the woodsmen are doing with Mr. C in the sheriff's station, because before I talked about this with uh, Em and Steve of No Ship Network when we did our part eight discussion, there was just this sense of like, oh, okay, they're like removing Bob from Mr. C, but then Bob is still in Mr. C because obviously he comes out in this episode. So why? Like, what does that mean? I don't know. I'm, I'm out on a little bit of a loss as the whole purpose of the woodsmen. They just look kind of cool. That's about it. Bob attacks Freddy the way that Judy attacked Sam and Tracy or the experiment. I don't know if we want to jump to calling her Judy or not. But it's the same thing where it's like like attacking their face. And you see the blood spraying everywhere. But because he's got the glove, Freddy survives. But it's the same mode of attack. And the fragments also go into the ceiling, like the fragments of the bob bubble. They ascend into the ceiling kind of similarly to how... In episode 16, Leland is, you know, the water comes down from the ceiling and Leland's screaming, Bob's screaming. You get the sense that he goes up into the ceiling like he's pulled out by the water or something. Bob is expunged. I don't know if that has anything to do with anything, but it's kind of cool he comes up. And it's also a nice little reference in a way back to uh, Todd Holland's episode 11 in the original series where they zoom out of the uh, ceiling holes, you know, the little holes in the material of the ceiling so now bob goes up into those when we see diane emerge there's like an egg type uh it looks like the same thing we see emerging out of the original dougie's head is the black smoke where his head should be uh, this like this egg thing that floats down and her face appears in it 
and then uh, up, you know, marches over NATO, NATO. Some of this stuff I think is just, it's Lynch doing his painter thing. I mean, a lot of this stuff was actually paintings, like the teeth below Sarah's face, that was like a painting he did at some point and all of this. So, you know, sometimes it's just a cool visual way of conveying the basic idea. I don't know if we can or should read more into it than that. When Cooper enters into the space of uh, behind the door in the Great Northern, uh, Mike reads the Fire Walk With Me poem to him. That's a nice little moment. There's a sequence where it's like just flashing between Cooper and Mike lightning fast. And it reminded me of a theory from Reddit. I think the first time I saw this episode, I was like, oh my God, maybe the theory was onto something where they theorized that Mike and Cooper were the same person, that Cooper was like Mike's dream projection or something like that. Almost plays into that person's idea of Cooper being like a murderer and then dreaming this whole Twin Peaks narrative as a way of justifying himself. Well, maybe in real life he looks more like Mike, um, you know, this older man with one arm, kind of feeble and whatever, and he just imagines himself as this FBI agent too. So that's something to consider. If it's all a dream, he doesn't necessarily look like he does in real life either. You know, maybe it's Leland dreaming it. This is kind of funny. When Cooper and Mike are walking through the convenience store space and you just see their sort of silhouettes and their shadows and the light barely hitting them for a while. I got a chill when I first watched it because I couldn't see Mike's hair so all I saw was like the back of his neck and his ears and I thought this hunched over goblin creature was sort of marching along next to Cooper and it, maybe it was the experiment because it has the it had the little horns sticking up like a Nosferatu figure hunched over so just picture if you will like a little a bald crown of a head with two pointy ears sticking up on either side like a bat. Like, that's what I thought I was looking at. And then as my eyes adjusted, I'm like, oh no, that's just the bottom of Mike's hairline. <laughs> but it was kind of cool while it lasted. I mentioned the jumping man going downstairs in the opposite direction, negative charge released by the contrary move movement of the positive. Cooper going upstairs, one way to look at it. Jeffrey shows the eight and the infinity marker. I already mentioned that. He talks about how, uh, I think he says it's, it's slippery in here, unless he says that to Mr. C, but, uh, you know, he's talking about time being kind of slippery, and I don't know if I have anything more much to say about Jeffrey's uh, position in this. It's, it's interesting, but I don't know that I read or want to read that much into it. It's just kind of a cool motif and a cool way of sending Cooper back in time. And, of course, as I said, we hear that sound from the very beginning of the show, again, right before Laura disappears. Why? Why is this? I, I don't know. The firemen gives all those clues in the first scene of Twin Peaks. Most of them come to play, I think, in these episodes. Remember, uh, you know, I think he says 4.30, 2.35, um, the period where listen to the sounds, the cricket sounds, remember Richard and Linda, uh, it's in our house now. Interesting statement. What else, what else happens? Most of the rest is, I guess, is part 18 now. Uh, Mr. C burns in the chair. The gold ball eats the hair, which I mentioned. We're back in the red room, but with that variation where some of the sequences start to unfold the same, but then something changes. I already really dwelled on those and what those differences are. It's interesting to see Cooper emerge to Diane in Glastonbury Grove because we haven't seen much of Glastonbury Grove in this episode. Somebody at one point speculated, I can't remember if this was listener feedback or what, but saying that uh, it's interesting to think maybe Hawk is supposed to meet Cooper and then something got screwed up in the red room and he didn't come out there you know he got blocked but hawk was supposed to meet him there instead of diane in part 18 possible <laughs> another thing is they talk to each other cooper and diane like there's some master plan that only they kind of understand and again this is sort of a function of diane being this appendage this this side of cooper that he needs to sort of help him out 
and uh, you know that that she would be in on whatever this information is. What is that master plan? What's the purpose? Is it the whole thing with the Judy Cage? You know, you gotta use Lara as bait to kill Judy and blow up that universe with like an atomic explosion. It's like I don't know. And of course, the other thing that sort of ties into the lodge lore right at the beginning of the show, as I mentioned, is 430 miles from Twin Peaks in the desert. So that's it. Uh, I just wanted to run through that list, but I really did cover the Lodge lore throughout this whole commentary. That's it for this episode. Tomorrow's episode is going to cover Season 3, Part 17 and 18, Current Events. Uh, These episodes aired on the same night in uh, September 2017, now almost six years ago. And uh, we're going to talk about what was going on in the world at that time, uh, the current events, what was on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, Usually we talk about the number one movie, but it was the same as the previous week, so we don't have too much to get into there, but still quite a bit of historical context. So uh, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can support this work on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies, and I'll see you tomorrow.